Welcome back to the Sentientism podcast, a podcast about what's real and what matters. Sentientism answers those two deep questions by committing to evidence, reason, and compassion for all sentient beings. In this episode, I talk to legal and rights academic and author John Adenatier. John tells me how his personal philosophy developed from being a devout Pentecostalist Sunday school teacher in Nigeria to being an atheist, vegan, and sentientist academic and author today. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. I'd love to know what you think. Why not write a review or give us some stars on your favorite podcast platform? You can find out more about sentientism at sentientism.info or just search for the word sentientism on any social media platform. You'll be made very welcome in any of our global community groups. They're open to anyone interested, not just sentientists. The audio on this episode is a little patchy, but hopefully if you uh, hang on in there, it improves and you'll be able to follow the conversation. Thank you for listening. so much for making the time to join me in this sentientist conversation. It's a real pleasure. And as we talked about before, the idea is it's a series of conversations about, I guess, personal philosophy and focusing on those two fundamental philosophical questions. What's real and what do we believe in and uh, what matters morally and how do we draw a moral circle? And sentientism is, I guess, a simple pluralistic philosophical baseline that just suggests that we should commit to using evidence and reason when deciding what we believe, that's naturalistic, and that we should have compassion for all sentient beings when we're thinking about what matters morally when we're drawing a moral circle. So um, yeah, it's just a series of conversations about how people come to those conclusions for themselves. So, but before we kick off, for people who don't know you, it'd be great if you could give a brief introduction to your life and your all right. Uh, yeah, so my uh, full name is John Denitira. I'm presently a lecturer in the law school at uh, Primary University. I've been here for just over just over a year. Um, before this, I was at Birmingham, where I was also a lecturer in law, and uh, I was there only for about a year. And before then, I was a I finished my PhD um, at Cambridge, where I wrote on conscientious objection. Uh, for religious and non-religious uh, believers. That's my general background, academic background. I was born in Nigeria, grew up in Italy, uh, but I've been, I've been in England for over a decade now. And my, my parents are um, Christians. Everyone in my family is, is a Christian. Yeah. Uh, and they're uh, evangelical Pentecostals. There's a lot of probably not really mainstream beliefs Lot of speaking in tongues, uh, yeah. lots of uh, charismatic movement, lots of singing, dancing in church, praying, and uh, laying hands on people to cure them from diseases. So that was my background. Of course, growing up, I uh, I was uh, part of that movement too, and I used to be a Sunday school teacher. Oh, really? Yeah, I used to indo- uh, indoctrinate teach teach kids, <laughs> uh, so to speak, about about Moses and Jesus and and things like that. Um, and I think it was really during my my teenage years that I went from one extreme, which was um, being a devout believer myself. I used to do a regular fast, uh, self-imposed uh, once a month. For the first week every month, I would, uh, would just do this fasting, um, a lot of praying, a lot of devotion and meditation and praying. And that was, that was probably my 15, 16. Yeah. And then from there, I, I came harder to justify my beliefs. I didn't really understand how it was possible. The Bible, which was the source of, um, which in, in the evangelical and Pentecostal uh, teachings is taken as you know, the absolute truth. Yeah. It's quite a I curious perspective, isn't it? That it is, you know, the word of God and unchangeable. Yeah. yeah, very, very literal um, understanding of, of the Bible. But I couldn't understand how it could be true. Um, and I couldn't understand how um, the many rules uh, he had could be justified uh, outside of it. So one one thing that struck a chord with me quite early on was um, the anti, anti-LGBT stance of, yeah. of, of my community. Uh, but more than that, I also saw that there was a, a lot of mixture of culture 
and religion. So that the, the interpretation of the Bible, though there was a big claim for it to be literalist one, I could see very clearly that there are a lot of cultural values, Nigerian cultural values, because that was the environment. There was, there was a big confluence of these two, uh, of, yeah. of the culture and, and, and the religious text. So it was clear to me that there, there wasn't really a, they weren't literalist enough. But also when, when they were being literalist enough, I couldn't find good justification for using the Bible as, as the evidence for what it was. Um, so I eventually growing up and give my, I should have said my, my parents are a missionary reverence both of them and so for they, they have set up churches all over the world especially in Italy um, my dad uh, is the is the president of uh, African churches in Italy Pentecostal African churches in Italy so it was a very strict up- upbringing in terms of we were at church usually three times a week um, sometimes more depending yeah. on the choir practice or something like that so yeah, it was it was a big personal uh, struggle to find my own identity and find my own belief systems out out of this, uh, especially because I had role of responsibility in the church. I was a Sunday school teacher. I was in charge of, of the of the kids, and, and um, yeah, so it, it took a lot of struggle. What really helped, I think, was uh, when I eventually left uh, living with my parents, went to uni. Uh, left left Italy to um, to go to uh, to uni to go to Birmingham. That's where I did my undergraduate. Then that, that freedom, that distance, helped me to then start thinking about these issues more independently. Um, but of course, even before that, uh, my my views had, had changed radically. But I was not ready to um, to come out as a non-believer. Yeah. So, and it sounds like it was quite a, a sort of personal process and an introspective process. Or were there other people around you or things you read or things you learned that helped in that process? Or was it more just working it through yourself? Yeah, it was, it was very individual. And uh, it was very much an issue of, of personal identity, a struggle of personal identity, not, not just of beliefs, but personal identity, because my, my upbringing was very structured in this way, right? community, my, I guess my friends, my community, my whole family were literally devoted uh, yeah. to, this, to this way of life. Um, it's embedded but, in every aspect of your life, your work, your friends, your family. Yeah. 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 <laughs> well, I, I, as, as I said, I grew up and schooled in Italy. And so there, there was kind of a divide between my, my family life, where everyone was uh, Pentecostal, evangelical, really committed. And my school friends, Italian school friends, right, uh, where Italy is, is a majority Catholic country, mm-hmm. but um, in the school environment, I would say not many people, at least not many of my school friends, were committed at all to, to those beliefs. So there was also this divide, right, between my, and some of it was also racial, right, because I, I grew up in Italy with white friends. And I was the only black kid in, at a point in the whole school. Yeah. Yeah. So there was, there was a lot of um, the, the religious stuff and the racial stuff. Everything was kind of these two words. And I, I wouldn't say that my, my friends influenced me to be a non-believer. In fact, yeah, they, they did it. But it was very much of a, of a personal um, struggle. And the, the, the readings... Eventually, you know, the uh, the intellectual part, I would say, came much later, um, probably um, during my PhD, where I yeah. started reading about naturalism, about secularism, about humanism, and that is where I found the courage to, you know, the, the courage to have my own convictions, but, yeah. but also the courage to come out um, to my parents as a as an atheist. Yeah, and how did that process go? I mean that. That's a that's a risky and difficult thing for many people. I mean, I you know I found it quite a difficult process over three or four years to sort of acknowledge that I'd sort of given up on my religious faith and was an atheist. And this is coming from a really really boring Church of England, you know, non intrusive background religion where you know we probably went to 
uh, church two or three times a year, not two or three times a week. So, so, so it was remarkably easy in that sense, but it still felt quite a wrench. But that must have been hard for, you know, when it's embedded in so many aspects of your life. It was, it was incredibly hard. Yes, incredibly hard. Um, especially because my parents, uh, especially my dad, had a position of responsibility in the in the church. Right, both of them, and. Uh, I would say it was it was a gradual thing. For several years, you know, it was clear that I wasn't burning with passion for Jesus. Uh, so, yeah. and you know, my my parents were just hoping that it was a phase. It was a phase, uh, like you know, teenagers, yeah, teenagers that you grow grow out of it. Because my my siblings, I have a brother and a sister, also went through similar stages, right? So I think they were hoping that it would be. Uh, it would be a stage as well. But um, eventually, when I have had several conversations, especially with my dad, because he's a person we, uh, we really have a lot of conflict, especially because of this issue. Yeah, I got to a stage where we, we couldn't speak. And and even now, this the, the relationship is a bit rocky. Um, so yeah, it, it, coming out as, a, as an atheist and as a humanist, and, and later on, also as a vegan, uh, yeah. <laughs> it's like double whammy. <laughs> yeah, cause cause many, 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 many frictions. Yeah, and they're still they're still there. Yeah, that's hard. It varies based on the cultural context and the religion as well. I think many religious people manage to abandon the supernatural aspects, but maintain a rich sort of cultural uh, connection with a religious community as well. But it's it seems to be easier in some, and, and more accepted in some religious communities than in it. Than it is in others. So Judaism, for example, many Jewish people are secular Jews who have no supernatural beliefs at all, but are still, you know, richly connected part of the you know, the Jewish culture. Um, mm. In other in other religious contexts and, and other cultures, you know, it's hard to do. You know, you almost have to be committed to the complete package of beliefs, otherwise it becomes difficult. So yeah, yeah, absolutely. In the case of my um, my upbringing, the, the supernatural beliefs are inherent part of the, of the belief system. It's, it's impossible to separate culture, doctrine, and the supernatural elements. They're all part of the same. And if you reject one, you reject all of them. That makes it emotionally very hard. I don't want to trivialize it, but it, as you said, you mentioned already the, the veganism side is um, another cultural challenge. <laughs> it's yeah. be very difficult. And as anyone who's spent any time on Twitter knows, you know, atheism can be challenging, veganism can be challenging, but both at once is uh, <laughs> almost asking for punishment. Uh, which of those was more challenging as a sort of transition for you in terms of family? And uh, I would say the religion. Definitely the religion, yeah. Yeah, I would say the religion bit because, you know, the veganism is, is not as core to the identity of, of my parents as the religion, especially to my, um, to my dad, but also the... the Veganism causes lots of friction, yeah, because it's, it's seen as uh, is an amplification of of this view that I was rejecting my upbringing, Re rejecting not just the religion, but also the culture. Uh, apparently, there's a culture of um, of carnism or, or, or something like that. Um, so I, I guess it's just this this feeling of of being rejected um, in, in significant ways. That's the difficulty, right? And it's it's hard to see that it's just a an individual intellectual conclusion you've come to. It doesn't feel like that. It feels to them like it's a rejection of you know things that are deeply important to them. So in a way, you can understand the challenging reaction, but um, yeah, it doesn't make it any easier to go through. So yeah, no, absolutely. Um, it's it doesn't. I understand. I understand the emotional reaction. Probably, you know, if if I had a child and. And I raised them vegan, and they they decided not to be vegan. There would be a similar emotional reaction yeah. of some sort. Um, so I totally understandable. But I did I did really try to reach out about the intellectual bits, intellectual arguments, and uh, sat down with both my parents several times. It wasn't always successful. Yeah, yeah. And um, one of the reasons that people are hesitant about moving away from a religious way of thinking is that they fear that their morality will have no basis. They're worried that without you know, a God, uh, a perfectly good being who sits in judgment and 
you know, even punishes us after death, that without that, there can be no good or bad. And um, so that's, that's a fear I think many people have about moving away from a religious belief. You, you know, you've made that transition. How would you describe the foundation of your morality now? What is it based on? And, and how has that thinking changed over time? Because you've mentioned already your veganism, you, you know, you've clearly gone from a position of moral considerations for humans, and then you've extended that more broadly. You know, how early did that happen in your life and how's that process worked? So in terms of veganism, I, I became vegan uh, just under five years ago. And this was uh, during during my PhD. So the, the, the PhD was really formative because I think the freedom uh, that I had being after work, I was very lucky because I had a full scholarship. Um, so I had time, I had the luxury of time. And I could really use that to um, to investigate the things that I cared most about. And so in, in, in terms of in terms of faith and religion, people get it the wrong way around. It is not that you cannot have morality or values without God, but it's that you cannot have God without values. So the religious attitude, our religious sentiment is one that is based on values of different sorts and for different people of different religious uh, traditions the values that are inherent in their, their beliefs may be different one common value is that of, of community there's a big sense of, of, of community in religious um, in religions right you go to church you participate in these rituals build your family around these these beliefs and these ethos <laughs> and that's all good, right? So when religious people say, oh, you cannot be moral without without God, they really they really get it the wrong way around. So it's our commitment to, to value, and I'm a value pluralist. I think there are many, many things that are valuable in life, and many ways to live a valuable life. And so the way I approach morality is, is basically trying to live it a life of value. Then the next question is how do I determine what is what is valuable? Yeah, and then that's that's a personal journey uh, for everyone. But also this idea of respecting of respect for value. This this will take us in the realm of, of moral philosophy, and I have to say I'm not a moral philosopher, though yeah. I dabble in aspects of, of moral philosophy. I think respect for values such as friendship. Uh, relationships of, of, of various kinds, but of course, you know, not just expanding what we're talking about about the moral circle, yeah, um, and moral consideration. I, I, I think same thing is a sufficient ground for thinking that someone is inherently valuable, yeah, or because they can experience, uh, they have a subjective experience. Uh, it's not just about pain, pleasure, but really a, about having having a subjective experience that things can go better or worse for you, right? And that others can impact how better or worse your life goes. Um, I think that that brings about the responsibility in others, and this is where the moral concern comes from, right? This responsibility for making our lives and other people's lives. Better or worse, yeah, yeah, and uh, and that's that's how I, I tend to think about about things that we have a duty to improve people's life, and we have a duty to at least not make their life worse. Try our best, and try the most that we can to not make their life worse. We're gonna we're gonna struggle to disagree on anything. <laughs> that's not how we're supposed to do it on youtube and podcasts and twitter we're supposed to be fighting over something but i don't think we're gonna but, but i i agree entirely right so some people think of sentience as being you know basic pains and pleasures like a sort of narrowly hedonistic range and i agree with you i don't think it's that at all i think of sentience is the full range of possible types of experience so that can include physical pains and pleasures but it can also include a sense of friendship and relationship and connectedness and awe and being at one with the universe and existential angst you know it's almost anything qualitatively negative or positive that you know an entity can experience uh, and i love the way you describe a sort of plur value pluralism because there are so many different things that might be important to mm. us as a sentient being they might be different things 
But what counts is that they affect our experience and it's our perception of that experience that matters most. Yeah, so that, all, all of that resonates very, very closely. Oh, I'm glad. I'm glad we are not having a Twitter war, uh, <laughs> <laughs> which is which is great. Yeah, I, I really think that subjectivism, this idea that I, I, um, I view I view ethics as as a range of you know, what how should I I live my life? Yeah. yeah. What should I do to to do the best I can to have a valuable life? And I view morality as as um, this interpersonal concern about about each other's life. How, what can we do to make other people's life better or at least not worse? Yeah. Uh, so I think it's very simple. It's probably not very sophisticated. I'm sure there are many philosophers that will write books that you know, will disprove this, this, this very simplistic view. But the, at least one merit it has is that it's very simple to, to explain. I, I wouldn't, though, want it to, to mean that we have no moral duties to non-sectant beings. I think this is. Uh, I think this. It's very important that there are also epistemic virtues or epistemic values. So even if a being is not sentient, doesn't mean that we uh, we have no duty. Yeah. Take take the Mona Lisa or whatever piece of art. Um, I, I, it would it would disrespect value itself to just destroy the Mona Lisa for any random reason. Yeah. Yeah. So I think we, just for that, just for that very basic concern for beauty, because beauty itself is a lie. And would you say that's true even if no one will ever see the Mona Lisa, no sentient being will ever experience it? Because in, personally, I take quite a hard view in, I, in, re, in reality, we agree, right? I think there's enormous value in the Mona Lisa, but I see all of its value being in the way it provides a positive experience for sentient beings. So I almost see it as very important, but instrumentally important but in the theoretical universe where there's a Mona Lisa floating in space that no sentient being will ever see. I guess I take quite a hard line and say that is morally you know, irrelevant. I mean, it, it makes me a silly conversation, but yeah. do you think it would have intrinsic value even in the absence of any sentient being? I'm not sure. Yeah. Um, that's that's my honest answer. Um, I, well, I do think that there are things that it would be inappropriate for a sentient being to respond to those things without due concern. So, like the like the Mona Lisa. Uh, if if we put the Mona Lisa next to you know, a can of soda, uh, yeah, or, or whatever, um, both can give pleasure, but yes, but it would. Because, for example, the history behind the Mona Lisa, not just the artistic configuration, the historical. So I, I, I'm not really sure about whether non-sentient things should be taken as only instrumentally valuable. Mm-hmm. But I think that there are. It would be it would be odd for sentient beings to respond randomly yeah. to non-sentient things yeah. yeah because there, there's a history there's, there's a culture there's a and not necessarily that there's just aspect of beauty in yeah. certain things that we we ought to respond in, in a particular way we ought not to respond in, in other ways yeah. and and that aesthetic aspect that aesthetic appreciation aspect of sentient experience is deeply valuable again it's not just the pains and pleasures so there's there's i guess a lot of different criticisms of this sentientist view one of course is the religious or the supernatural criticisms. I guess there are two schools of thought. One is a more anthropocentric one that says, no, we should draw our moral circle around just around humans and exclude non-human animals, which is obviously very common, probably the default. Uh, the other is actually that sentientism is too narrow and that what we should actually have do is have direct intrinsic moral concern for um, elements of the biosphere, so plants, for example, that you know, doesn't look like they are sentient, but they're biological and living, um, or even to ecocentrism, where you know even rocks and rivers and completely non-sentient aspects of the environment should have um, moral consideration as well. I, in a way, I'm reasonably open to the idea that we could have moral consideration beyond sentience, uh, as long as it doesn't undermine the priority we place on sentient beings. And it does feel to me that a lot of the modern environmental concern, 
conservation movements seem to make that mistake in that they go from uh, an anthropocentric moral circle where we're concerned about you know, all of human humanity. And that's partly where the environmental and climate change concern comes from, because we can see the negative impact of climate change on humanity. Uh, and in response, they jump to extend their moral circle to include things like rocks and rivers and plants, which you know you could see as a positive step, more holistic appreciation for our responsibility. But at the same time, they skip over trillions of farmed and wild sentient animals that absolutely can suffer. So it feels to me as though the average environmentalist, you know, has more direct moral concern for a river or a you know a mountain or a plant or a tree. And they do over a sentient being that absolutely can suffer. That's my, part of my concern about the you know, ecocentrism or biocentrism is, you know, I'm sort of open-minded about those things, but please don't forget the trillions of sentient beings. It's almost as if they've gone from having a moral circle to a two-layered moral donut where they've missed out a strip in the middle. So that's part of my concern about, you know, even broader moral circles is that they can sometimes, you know, have that side effect. Mm. So... I think if you if you look at it as on the basis of respectful values, respecting values, yeah. um, then you can see why uh, environmentalists, as you put it, may may be overstepping, right? Because sentient sentient beings have an interest in, for example, not suffering, not dying, because they have they have this interest. Yeah, I mean, um, they, they're sentient is almost the root of their interests or needs. I mean, I'd almost argue without sentience, you can't have an interest in anything, right? Right, but you can you can be of value. Yes, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so this, this is the point. The rivers, the flowers, the trees, um, the environment, they can be of value. Now we yes. can uh, dispute what value it is. Is it just aesthetic value? And if it's just aesthetic, that, that may take us far enough, right, not to... For example, not to litter, uh, which yeah. is the example, or not. And, to and, and that aesthetic value is also really important because I think some some of the people, ecocentrists and biocentrists I talk to, they're nervous that if we have a sentiocentric view or a sentientist view, our approach to the wider environment is just that we want you know hard technical ecosystem services to enable us to stay alive and survive. And it's like no, that's not what sentience is. Right? Sentience is also the rich aesthetic appreciation for nature. So I think in practical mm. terms. Most sentientists also want, you know, a rich, verdant, diverse ecosystem for us to be part of as well, because that aesthetic appreciation is deeply valuable too. But yeah, Absolutely. sorry to cut you off. The only footnote I would like to put in uh, is that there may be some times where our aesthetic appreciation for the environment may require us to frustrate some of our expectations of sentient beings, right? We, we, we may have to make some sacrifices, right? yeah. sacrifices that we wouldn't uh, want to make because uh, in order to preserve the beauty of, of the environment. So yes, I, I do think I do think that our interest in sentient beings should usually be prioritized. But um, of course, life is not always as straightforward as that, and there may be instances where we have to sacrifice in order to preserve the beauty, right? You know, artists, artists sacrifice a lot when they have to create yeah. their, their art, Mona Lisa. And sometimes they have to sacrifice a lot in order to preserve it, preserve the Mona Lisa at the of, of cost. So yeah, I, I think it's, it's, it's this same way of viewing. It comes back to your earlier point, right? Neither of us are sort of professional moral philosophers work in different fields. and there's enormous value in a lot of the complexity and richness of moral philosophy and lots of different schools of thought about how to play off those trade-offs and those you know, trolley problems. And But I think what's most important is the really simple, practical philosophy that we're discussing, which is you know, whether you're a deontologist or you're a utilitarian or you apply virtue ethics or how much you weight different sets of aesthetic interests against other types of interests, or whether you use a Maslow's hierarchy or something else. Right? That's all really interesting. The baseline that I think is most important to set is that at, however you're working that out, you should at least grant moral consideration to every sentient being. So it's, it doesn't solve it, all of the problems. It doesn't explain how to resolve those trade-offs, but it just says very simply, at least in your moral calculus, you cannot ignore 
any sentient being as you're working it through. So I quite like the idea of having that really simple baseline so mm. that we can say, right, we commit to naturalism, we commit to moral consideration for all sentient beings, and then we can still fight about all <laughs> we can fight about all the other stuff for as long as we like. But right. but it almost feels to me like there's more value in getting more people up to that baseline than there is in the you know detailed philosophy. Because at the moment, when you look around the world, most of the eight billion people on the planet disagree with naturalism. They hold uh, supernatural beliefs that also warp their ethics often in in painful ways, and they also have uh, a way of drawing the moral circle that uh, you know certainly for most people excludes most non-human animals. You know they might include companion animals and charismatic wild animals, but other wild animals and uh, farmed animals are certainly practically excluded. Of course, we also know there are many humans who exclude other humans from their moral circle, or at least denigrate them. So, so to my mind, yeah, actually trying to get more people up to that very simple baseline potentially has more value in driving us towards a, a decent future than, you know, working out the details of some crazy tro- trolley problem thought experiment. But that might just be because I'm not clever enough to understand that stuff. So, no, I, so I stick with the simple. I think in terms in terms of outcome, we agree. Um, the 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 only proviso I'll put to what you've said um, is that. This simple baseline that you have outlined uh, and that we both agree on is also the product of moral theory, yeah. moral philosophy. Uh, and so we shouldn't throw out you know, the, the baby with the bathwater, right? Uh, yeah. So we shouldn't denigrate the, the process that brought us to the academic process and the moral philosophical thinking, uh, going back to Bentham or even earlier. That, that brought us this this idea of, of naturalistic worldview and sentientist worldview. So yes, I, I agree that we don't have to teach the world about trolley problems or uh, differences between intrinsic and uh, instrumental uh, values and value pluralism, value monism, all of this complex terminology is not needed. Um, not yet. Not yet, but that we should uh, we should we should acknowledge that a lot of our own thinking, however simple we can put it forward, is also the product of uh, intellectual giants. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's also a danger in something that seems um, to me very commonsensical and almost tautological. Like, you know, what other way could there be of understanding reality but evidence and reason? And mm-hmm. You know how else could you draw your moral circle except using sentience? That that there's a risk that becomes a dogma in its own right. But the the naturalistic commitment always needs to be open to new evidence, new ideas, never being 100% confident about anything outside of formal systems, and and always ready to question and doubt even those foundations and and um, you know and and leave them open to challenge. So yeah, absolutely. In fact, I I would want to um, take this a bit further. I think we have a duty to, as part of this naturalistic worldview, to actually engage with views that systematically undermine both naturalism and yes. scientism in general. Yeah. So we, we have a duty to engage in that. Uh, as an example, uh, I hope it doesn't come across as virtual signaling. Even though I hold many progressive uh, views, I every day try to watch uh, or engage with conservative outlets like Fox News, Fox yeah. News, for example. And, and I and some of my friends, a uh, housemate, criticize me because they say, why are you watching that garbage? Uh, and I say, well, I think it's our, it's our duty to, to reach out to, to, to people, or at least not just reach out, but be receptive to views that systematically undermine our own, you know, and to be able to be, to be open to challenge those views, or at least understand them. Yeah. I totally agree. And I think there's two reasons for that, at least. One is that is the epistemological one about evidence and reason and naturalism and always being open to new evidence and new ideas. And if you're not willing to listen, you're not going to hear new ideas. But it's also the the compassion side of sentientism in that it's very easy to have compassion for people we agree with, you know, within our own tribe or our own political system or, you know, our own group. But that's not what sentientism is saying. It's saying you have to have compassion for all sentient beings. And that includes people you disagree with on Twitter or or someone who voted for Trump or whatever the or someone who voted for Jeremy Corbyn or whatever the, the group might be. You have to have compassion, even for people you disagree with. And that compassion means you need to 
you can be robust in your views and you can challenge their ideas and you can be direct and you can be clear, but you have to have compassion for them as an individual, understand why they hold those views, where they came from. Maybe they were subject to their own indoctrinations as we all are. Um, and because that that's the only way we can constructively have conversations and try and move things forward. Compassion doesn't mean weakness and it doesn't mean appeasement and it doesn't mean you roll over and you know let bad people do bad things, right? You can be remarkably firm and robust in your compassion, but I think you have to have those two aspects. Uh, I mean, I had some conversations recently off the back of what's going on in the States where some people I know, know reasonably well were making some very broad generalizations about 47% of the US population and just mm. you know categorizing them as racists and Nazis and fascists. And it's like, uh, some, of them, some of them are definitely, but half the country, like, you, you know, look at some of the surveys, think about the demographics, listen to some people and understand that there's a, some individual realities underneath that group you've just defined. And you can, mm. you can appreciate the emotion and the reaction and the tribalism, just wanting to cut a group of people off. But we know where that ends, right? So it's not it's not a good place. So I agree. I think there's an epistemological reason and a compassionate reason to still try and engage and understand views that we find difficult and that we disagree with. So. Absolutely. I, I, we, we are agreeing a bit too much. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We've got to find something. Got to find something. So, um, I mean, that's been brilliant. Thank you so much for sharing that sort of story about what you know what what you've come to think is real and what matters to you morally. And it's interesting because, again, I, th I think we agree that, to me, they link together very closely because, in a way, my ethical stance is actually grounded in naturalism because I don't need a supernatural judge to tell me what's right or wrong or a standard. But at the same time, I'm not going to go down a completely you know, relativistic view where I say you know, anything goes and it's just up to individual cultures to agree what's right. My stance is actually grounded in a naturalistic understanding of us as sentient beings and non-human animals as sentient beings and our physiology and the way our brains work and the way our consciousness operates and what suffering and flourishing mean to us as you know, in technical terms almost patterns of information processing right so though the root elements of my ethics the things that they're based on sentience and sentient beings are actually things i have come to a naturalistic understanding of so while lots of people will see the naturalism over here and the ethics over here for me They've become linked, quite bound together. It's interesting to see how those threads flow through. But it would be good to talk a little bit now about if you imagine we can persuade everybody on the planet to agree with us. So we're now in a position where more of the world's population are committed to that open-minded evidence and reason. You know, ha has some basic level of compassion for all sentient beings. I'm interested in your view as to what that future might look like, and you can go, you know, super sci-fi. A few hundred years or you can think medium or short term and how you think we'll get there and and i'd be interested to also think about how some of your work i don't know particularly the human and animal rights stuff might might play into that but i don't know how optimistic or pessimistic you feel but where do you think how do you think the future could develop if we can persuade more people to agree with us uh, in terms of how do we get to the sentences future two ways i i used to be a confident just by providing information to people, they could come to their senses. Yeah, if only. <laughs> and see, clearly, there's no good reason for believing God. Look, look at all this scientific evidence that um, puts that into doubt. Or clearly, you should be vegan because X, Y, Z. And my logic I, is irresistible. Yeah, <laughs> I've, got, I've come to the, I've come to the view that. Our, our emotions come first, our emotional reactions come first, and then philosophy does the work of post facto justification, yeah. the rationalization. So I think the discussion we were having earlier about empathy is actually the way that we are more likely to get there at some point. Well, at least it will take us there, um, trying, trying to get people to abandon the emotional comfort of of the way they have been brought up it, it can be in relation to belief in god or or belief in human supremacy and and showing that the alternative actually uh, is not as emotionally draining or as emotionally negative as people would like and one way i suppose it's it sounds super cliche um, but it's just being 
being an example, showing that your life is a life of, of value and of virtue, and that other people can come point to you as someone that they wouldn't mind emulating, right? Yeah. So uh, just by showing that you are you know, in good health or that you are in a, an emotionally stable place, you, uh, you make it more likely that that people have a positive reaction to whatever belief systems that you are advocating. Another thing is convenience. We have to work with selfish human, human nature. Yeah. So especially in terms of you know, veganism, basically we have to play, play the capitalist game. And I think uh, many... Many entrepreneurs are doing just that. Vegan alternatives are super accessible through through the free markets, through uh, through capitalism. I think you're right. I think there's a really interesting example there because we'd love to think that moral argument would just persuade people to give up animal product, and and with some people it does. You know, people have been taught from birth by society and parents that it was completely normal to have sentient beings harmed and killed for us to consume. It feels still very normal to do that in society you know there's still this sense that veganism and associated ideas are you know weird or unusual or or, or socially strange and it's that emotional and that so those social norms that are stopping people from doing it so ironically as the alternatives become easier and more prevalent and cheap fast easy you know much less environmentally damaging as they arguably already are you'll almost get to the point where i think people will end up going vegan almost by accident without really taking a decision because the alternatives are so prevalent and easy and available. And that will actually free them to then update their ethics mm. after, after their behavior shifted. I think it would be much easier for people to become ethical vegans, <laughs> you know, once, once, once they already are, than, yeah. um, than actually, you know, taking the ethical shift. And, and I wish it was different, but I think we have to be realistic. Yeah, it doesn't really bode well for uh, for me in my profession as a as an academic, as someone that is teaching, and I, I teach mainly legal philosophy. You know, persuasion, moral, uh, philosophical persuasion doesn't work. It's a shame. You know, I believe I I, I wish it was different. But I, I think it does work. It, it does have an important role. But yeah. This idea of emotional connection and convenience really is um, is more practical. It's more immediate. And then the rationalization, the ethics, the, the arguments come, come afterwards. Yeah. yeah. Mm. So in terms of uh, when will this happen? Uh, when are we going to have a naturalistic worldview? Uh, and it, you know, our moral circle expand? I am not confident that will happen very soon. Uh, yeah. In terms of the naturalistic worldview, in fact, I'm, I'm confident that it may never happen. Because of the strong emotional attachment that uh, religiosity has, yes. And in a way, I'm I'm reasonably relaxed about that uh, because because of my compassion for people who have religious and supernatural views. I want them to be free to believe what they want to believe. I don't want to enforce that or control it or constrain it in any way. So people can believe what they like. My primary concern is where those beliefs. Are used to justify constraining, harming, or you know, even in extremists, killing other people because of those. So as, as long as we can get to a position where people might still hold supernatural views, but they're not using that to justify causing harm or warping ethics, you know, I'm completely comfortable with that situation mm -hmm. continuing for as long as they want to continue. Um, but it does seem quite difficult to avoid that warping of ethics, partly because in many of the supernatural views something is being promoted as more important than sentient beings. So whether it's a god or a church or an institution or an autocratic leader or a nation state or, you know, it doesn't even have to be religious. As soon as, you, you know, a way of thinking puts something as more important than suffering and death, you tend to get quite a lot of suffering and death. Um, but, I, you know, if we can get to a position where we have total freedom of belief, but, you know, that's no longer being used to justify or cause harm, I'd uh, be quite com comfortable at carrying on forever. So. Well, this idea of freedom of, of belief and freedom of religion and conscience, in law at least, has never been a uh, an absolute license to do whatever you want. And and so we, we can take this a step further that it's not just about what you have a legal right to do or what you, are, you don't have a legal right to do. It's also what you shouldn't do, morally speaking, a very legal and moral obligation uh, that way. 
So yes, the, the fact that you think that Jesus permits you to eat a beef burger is not is not necessarily uh, a good reason for you to do so. Right? Yeah. And Jesus definitely doesn't oblige you to eat a beef burger. And I don't know of any divinity or, or assumed divinity that obliges you to, to do that. Uh, other than, I suppose, uh, animal sacrifice, which in some, in some religions is still, is still man mandated. Um, but I, I think that those are smaller. Uh, smaller yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yes, I, I, do, I do think that uh, I am pessimistic in, in terms of religiosity, in terms of, in terms of uh, compassion, I think it's practical compassion or more vegan future. I think the, the the more we develop in terms of economics, in terms of education, in terms of uh, having these products easily available to everywhere, in everywhere in the world, and people actually seeing the health benefits of moving towards plant-based diet. But of course, veganism is not just about what we eat. At least this this incremental changes. I'm a bit more optimistic, uh, mainly mainly because. It's just, it's just market for it. Yes. And I'm not. I'm not a big uh, capitalist. Uh, I think that we, we need to really think about how how free the markets should be. Um, but in our in our current situation, there's this huge amount of, of, of return. Yeah, agree. And um, as as we close out, you're focused in the legal space and in the rights spaces. What role do you think? The fields of law and animal and human rights can play in that somewhat pessimistic context of how hard it is to make change happen. So I, you know, I've somewhat cheekily rewritten the Sustainable Development Goals in a sentientist context, and I've even redrafted the Universal Declaration of Human Rights as a, a Universal Declaration of Sentient Rights to sort mm. of try and integrate human and animal rights as a thought experiment. Do you think that the rights and legal fields will follow public opinion and generic uh, developments or do you think they can actually break new ground and and help accelerate progress so this comes back to what we were discussing earlier right that what we we and i mean you and i take as yeah. a simple moral moral facts actually were the product of academic development right of thinking yeah so, yeah. so I'm, I'm hoping that uh, academic thinking can have that, that we're doing on these issues can then become that basic common sense uh, ground. And, but, but you need to do the heavy lifting, right? So yeah. uh, just, just like you, I'm interested in the idea of the continuity between human rights and animal rights. I've been writing paper which will go uh, into, into, into a new book where we don't need to be redrafting human rights documents to include animal rights. Uh, where these documents that already exist, these catalogs of, of fundamental rights, can can be understood to cover not just humans but also non-human animals. Yeah. And in fact, we are all, almost we are like some way into that because um, human rights catalogs um, are used to afford fundamental rights to non-humans, such as you know, churches, corporations, associations. <laughs> Um, so this idea that we need to redraft uh, existing bills of rights or fundamental rights, I can see why you would want to do that. Yes, why I, I, I like to think that we that that is in principle, though pragmatically, uh, but in principle is not necessary. That yeah. there is already a rich corpus of fundamental rights which um, animal rights can animal rights advocates can tap into. I'm encouraged because the, um, I think there was a decision in Islam, the Islamabad High Court, which did exactly that, used existing human rights and fundamental rights, constitutional rights instrument to, uh, to guarantee certain rights for certain uh, non-human animals. So I, I, I believe that academic thinking on this line um, can, can really make a difference and it's actually already up. Yeah, and I because I don't think rights are some sort of magical thing that's bestowed on entities. They're just a tool we can use to protect things that we see have value. So in that context, 
I agree, because although I did redraft the Universal Declaration of Human Rights as a, as a total amateur, the thing that surprised me is how little I needed to change it. Because while there are some rights, like you know, the rights to an education or you know, maybe the rights to uh, employment or some of the other things that you might think are higher up the Maslow's hierarchy, that maybe it doesn't make sense to grant to animals, the most important ones we have in common. Mm. Um, so when you think about you know security and uh, sustenance and the right to continue living and the freedom from physical and emotional harms, all of the things that we as humans see most as our most important rights that most deeply need protecting because they're at the base of the hierarchy, mm. we share with all sentient beings. So so I was really surprised at how little I needed to change to create that universal declaration of sentient rights. And as you say, you know, whether it's in Islamabad or some of the stuff that's going on in the US or some of the things that are going on in Switzerland, people are taking some really innovative approaches, whether it's about extending the concept of personhood and just to sort of stretch the court's thinking and actually our own human intuitions about you know, if we care about the suffering of humans, mm. why not care about the suffering of non-humans? It's, it's difficult. I tend to be optimistic by, by nature, but I think there is some really interesting work going on there. So, yes, yes, and and, and I hope to uh, to contribute uh, in this, this regard too. I've used up a lot of your time already, but it's been a genuine pleasure talking to you, and we've found almost nothing to disagree about. Um, <laughs> are there any other th- themes you'd like to explore, or things you'd like to touch on before we wrap up, or Oh, well, uh, I suppose I should do a bit of self-promotion. So I've just published a book from a, uh, which I, is called uh, The General Rights to Conscientious Objection, the humanist idea that this idea of conscientious objection yeah. uh, that used to be reserved for religious individuals, or is commonly thought to be reserved for religious individuals, actually is available to the religious and non-religious uh, alike and in fact it should be so i make both philosophical and and legal arguments for for that conclusion uh, and that is available in every good store uh, published by cambridge university press in terms of papers i'm working on uh, or things that i publish you can find them on my uh, on my queen mary uh, portal website and uh, also i have a twitter account dr john and and there i share my uh, my views on both humanists and uh, uh, vegan and sentimentalist issues in, in, in general. So that's that's how you can follow me. Yeah. That's brilliant, and I'll include all of those links in the show notes as well, so that people can pick them up and that's click and follow you. So yeah. Um, so John, it's been a genuine pleasure. Thank you very much for the conversation. For me too. Thank you. And uh, I'd, I'd love to do it again sometimes. We'll have to think of something to disagree about next time. <laughs> yeah, let's 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 try. Yeah, and it's great to have you in our group, uh, our Facebook group as well. So Yes, I enjoyed that too. Um, and as I say, my final thank you is just, as you've said, one of the most important ways we can drive change is just normalizing these ways of thinking. And um, hopefully by sharing these conversations, we're doing a tiny, tiny thing to do that. So okay. thank you. Thank you. Cheers, John. Thanks for listening. You're helping to normalize rational, compassionate thinking. Don't forget to subscribe, leave us some stars or a review. You can visit sentientism.info to find out more and you'd be very welcome in any of our online community groups. The biggest is on Facebook. If you like what we're doing, why not tell your friends about us?